Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and welcome to the Gospel According to Moses in the book of Genesis, as we're doing our Torah study and continuing, because now we're on lesson 65. We're going to pick up at that place in the Torah where Jacob deceives his father Isaac when he dresses up like his brother Esau. And what happens here in Genesis 27, Esau really gets angry for stealing his birthright. And on top of that, when we read in Genesis 27, 41, that Esau gets so angry that he wants to kill his brother. It says this, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near then I will kill my brother Jacob. The days of my mourning of, of, of our father are near, which means his dad was sick. He realizes that his dad is going to die. Well, it's very interesting. That doesn't happen until much later because actually Jacob and Esau buried their father. And Esau never really kills his brother. Now we remember that in Lesson 64, that Esau traded his birthright for some red stew. And there, in that lesson, we find out, based upon the chiasm that God actually inspired Moses to use, that Esau despised his birthright, he counted as nothing, he rejected his parents totally, he rejected the covenant the covenant that could have come down from Abraham through Isaac and perhaps through him, but he was not picked for that. Now Esau, his name means hairy, but it says that Esau also is the father of the Edomites. Edom means red because when he was born, it says he was born red and hairy. So they named him Esau, but his hair was red. So all of a sudden, it's almost like he's got a nickname, and the nickname is Edom, which means red. I've given you a link at the website in the session description for a history of the Edomites. And it's probably well worth going into that link, reading about the history of Edomites, and again, to see, it starts from here because this is going to carry you guys all the way to the book of Revelation. Now, the Edomites, the descendants of Edom, actually become bitter enemies of Jacob and his descendants, the Israelites. This carries throughout their history, even into Jesus' day. And it's very interesting, if you study the Feast of Purim, and you put the Feast of Purim in its historical context. And you know that's the story of Esther and how she saved all of Israel. And in, the, in that Feast of Purim, in the remembrance of those events in the book of Esther, the, the evil one in that story is Haman. And he wanted to commit genocide. It is quite clear when you read the story of Esther Haman wanted to kill every Israel, every person of Israel, the entire nation. 
Now, what's very interesting is that story of Esther is connected in surprising ways to the story of Jacob and Esau, and specifically to Esau. On top of that, it's connected to Jesus. This is it, this is awesome. So I highly recommend that you actually take a look at the video Truth Nuggets 15, which is on the Feast of Purim. And it goes into this connection between Haman, Jacob, Esau, and Jesus in even more detail. And I highly recommend it because it's so connected to this these verses that we're studying in Torah right now. So it's very interesting. It's going to take us right to Jesus. You cannot have Jesus without the Torah, and you cannot have the Torah without Jesus. We recall in John 5.39, Jesus says, probably in 24 to 30 AD, that all scripture testifies of him. What scripture did they have? All they had was the Hebrew scriptures, which you call the Old Testament. And the foundational books of the Hebrew Bible at that time was the Torah. So in this podcast, definitely we're going to see again that awesome connection. I'm going to see the awesome truth of Jesus' words that we read in John 5.39. So you ready? Come. Let's go. In Genesis 27, starting at verse 41, and again, I'm using the Fox translation. Fox, again, is a Jewish scholar who basically went into the Torah, and he went into the ancient manuscripts that we have uh, from the Hebrew, and he tries to write uh, the Bible itself as direct from the Hebrew as possible, so sometimes it's very difficult to read. But I want to make sure that you hear the names and you hear uh, the pronunciation of some of these things directly in the Hebrew. Besides, there's a couple of important things in here uh, when he uh, actually goes in here that are important because he's actually going right from the Hebrew. So in 41, we read, as Esav, see, there, there's one right now, not Esau, Esav. As Esav held a grunge against Yaakov because of the blessing with which father had blessed him, Esav said in his heart, let the days of mourning for my father draw near, and then I will kill Yaakov, my brother. Rivka was told of the word Rivka, Rebecca, okay? Rivka was told of the words of Esau, her elder son. She sent and called for Yaakov, her younger son, and said to him, Here, Esau, your brother, is consoling himself about you with the thought of killing you. So now, my son, listen to my voice. Arise and free, flee to Lavan, my brother in Haran. And stay with him for some days until your brother's fury has turned away, until his anger turns away from you and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and have you taken from there. And should I be bereaved of both of you in a single day? So Rivka said to Yitzhak, in other words, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my wife life because of those Hittite women. If Yaakov should take a wife from the Hittite woman like these, in other words, if remember, 
okay, Esau married Hittite women. He did it against his father's will. He never asked his father to arrange the marriages, and that is huge. Remember last week we talked about Beit Av, the house of the father. This is an ancient Near East concept, okay? Patriarchal families. This is not just the Bible. This is the ancient Near East. This is Canaanites. This is the Hittites. They had patriarchal families, and it's called the Beit Av, the house of the father. So therefore, the Bekor, the firstborn, had tremendous responsibility to stand with his dad, even before his dad dies, okay, to maintain the family. Because the Bekor, the firstborn, will get the Bekorah, okay, the birthright, okay, that right of the firstborn. And that means he gets a double share in terms of the inheritance. Why? Because he has to spend it to take care of the family. It's not his. Okay, this is the bait of. This is fascinating to learn, and I do not learn it in Orthodox Jewish commentary. I don't learn about it in the JPS. This is actual ancient Near East biblical history, so I had to go to different resources to actually take a look at this as well. So here, Esau, Esau is actually going against his father. And basically, he doesn't care about the bait of at all. Remember, he would disdain his birthright? He disdains the bait of. He could care less because he's going against his parents this way and he does it again. So anyway, so Rivka says to Yitzhak, I load my life because of those Hittite women. If Yaakov should take a wife from the Hittite women like these, from the women of the land, why should I have life? So Rivka was pretty down on this. So Yitzhak called for Yaakov. He blessed him and commanded him, saying to him, you are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. Arise and go to the country of Aram, to the house of Betuel, your mother's father, and take for yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. May God Shaddai bless you. All right, so Elohim Shaddai. Just as an aside, we don't know what Shaddai means. Okay? Um, some say it means almighty. Well, no, uh, it probably doesn't, but it could. Okay, we don't know. It's an ancient Hebrew word. So you say El Shaddai, the God who is Shaddai. Uh, what's very interesting, there is a Hebrew word that's very closely associated with Shaddai, and it means breast. It's very feminine. Okay? So is this the possibility that this is the feminine aspect of God? All right? This is the God of the breast. In other words, the closeness, bringing you close to the breast, okay, and holding you close. Could be. We don't know. I like to say El Shaddai means God Almighty, uh, and that's fine, but I know in my head that I really don't, I'm perhaps misusing what the meaning is, because we don't know. May God Shaddai bless you, and may he make you bear fruit and make you many, so that you become a host of peoples. And may he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you, for you to inherit the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So Yitzhak sent Yaakov off, and he went to the country of Aram, to Lavan, son of Betuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rivka, and mother of Yaakov and Esau. And Esau saw that Yitzhak had given Yaakov farewell blessing and sent him to the country of Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that, when he had given him blessing, he had commanded him, saying, You are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. And Yaakov had listened to his father and his mother and had gone to the country of Ram. Now listen. And Esau saw that the women of Canaan were bad in the eyes of Yitzhak and his father. So Yitzhak, his father. 
So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, sister of Nevaiot, in addition to his wives as a wife. I mean, right again. It starts at the, right there, and it continues in there. So the other thing I want to go to immediately is, uh, we'll cover this now, I want to go to Genesis chapter 36, verses uh, 1 through 5. Basically, we see that Esau is Edom. In other words, I like that statement. Esau is Edom. In other words, he is the one that really brings about the Edomite people. That, that's where they come from. And remember, Edom means red. Now, he has a number of wives, es Esau, and we already know that. And his wives from Canaan were Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oho Livama, daughter of Anna, uh, granddaughter of Sivan, and Hivite, uh, the Bas and uh, the Hivite, and Basamat, daughter of Ishmael, and the sister of Nevoyot. But here's his sons. Eliphaz, Reuel, Yeush, Yalam, Korah. These are Esau's sons, and he had five sons. Now, what I wanted you to see is this. As you progress through the history of Israel, and in there, as you read that history, as he's gleaning it not only from the Bible, but also from other documents, we find that Edom and Israel, they kind of get after each other. Okay, In Numbers 20, verse 20, we won't read it, you'll remember that the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt. God comes to Moses and said, All right, Moses, here's what you do. Uh, this is your relatives. This is family. Do not go against Edom. Okay? Uh, and Moses says, okay, no problem. So in Numbers chapter 20, he tells the, the Edomites, hey, can we come through your land? We won't bother you. We'll stay on the king's highway, all right, out of your cities and so on. We'll use the wells that are out there. We'll pay you for water. And what had happened, Edom said no, and they came out with them with a strong hand. That does not mean they attacked them. There was no war. The Torah does not say a war. They just came out with a strong hand. And so therefore, what does the Torah say? Was it a war? No. Could be. Could be, but it doesn't say that. Because immediately when they come out of the strong hand, what does Israel do? They get out of town. Okay, they leave. Okay, so th there's no battle even presented here, but again, they're obeying God. Now, as time goes by, and again, like I said, Edom becomes more and more of an enemy of uh, Israel. And so what I want to do is I want to go to Psalm 83. Psalm 83, verses 1 through 8. And here we have God inspiring the writer Asaph. Okay, not David. This is not a David psalm. But the psalm of Asaph. And all of a sudden we hear some very interesting things in God's word. Psalm 83, verse 1. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, O God, and do, uh, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. So let me stop there. So this psalm is about God's enemies. And Asaph is trying to talk to God about his enemies. So let me go down to verse 5. For they, the enemies of God, have conspired together with one mind. Against you, God, they make a covenant. Here's the list. The tents of Edom. And the Ishmaelites. Moab the Hagrites, Gabal, and Ammon, and Amalek. Now let me just stop there real quick. 
if we go back to the verses, okay, in Genesis, um, da, 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 where we are, 36, Eliphaz, his son, has a concubine and has a son through the concubine. Now, in those days, in the ancient Near East, you can have a wife and you can have a concubine, okay? A concubine is like a wife, but doesn't have the same legal status. So the concubine has a son, and his name is Amalek. And so all of a sudden, that's where the Amalekites come from. So the Amalekites are listed here as enemies of God. And Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, also has joined with them. They have become the help, uh, help to the children of Lot. So not only do we see Edom becoming an enemy, but we also see that Amalek, who's a grandson of Esau and Israel, indeed um, are the enemies of God. As time continues, we come to the prophecy of Obadiah. And I hit this not only in church today, but we're going to take a look at it in a little, probably more detailed way tonight. So in the prophecy of Obadiah, in chapter 1, and that's kind of a misnomer because it only has one chapter, okay? Verses 15 through 18. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. And the reason why is Fox, the Fox translation is just the Torah. It's only the five books of the Torah, so I've got to go to another version. New American Standard, starting in verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your, on your own head. Now, what... It says, what, uh, what you have done, meaning Edom. What you have done, okay, it's going to be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and uh, become as if they had never existed. And let's see how far away. Oh, at the 18. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. The house of Jacob. What's another name for Jacob? Israel. Israel. Israel will come against Edom. Then the house of Jacob, Israel, will be a fire, and the house of Joseph, a flame. But the house of Esau, or Esau, will be a stubble, and they will set him on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Now, let me just stop here for a second. As we talk about Edom, we talk about this continued conflict between Israel and Edom. Notice the words, the day of the Lord. I don't care what source you use. The Jewish Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Judaica, a fantastic book by Dr. Raphael Pate called The Messiah Texts. Um, over and over again, one source after another talks about the phrase that is found in the Old Testament called the Day of the Lord. So I'm going to go to Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible and let me read to you and this is common throughout all Jewish or Christian references on this phrase. The day of the Lord, this phrase, this is the time of decisive visitation of Yahweh, when he intervenes to punish the wicked, deliver and exalt the faithful remnant who worship him, and establish his own rule. Both judgment and salvation are especially prominent aspects. The day of the Lord is a significant concept in biblical eschatology, especially in the Old Testament prophetic books. Though the precise, term, the, the precise term appears 16 times in the Old Testament, and it always, 
always refers to the end of time, the end of days. A little bit later on in this article in Urban's Dictionary, it is a time of salvation through judgment, purification and blessing through purging. The prophets announced that a group from the covenant nation will emerge from the judgment and receive divine blessings. That's the remnant. Okay, when you take a look at Jewish eschatology, they talk about the remnant of Israel. And so we've got that, and that's what Erdman's is talking about. Matter of fact, this group of survivors is called a remnant. Now, I'm not going to go into this right now, but if I refer to the Messiah in here, the Messiah plays a significant key role. The Messiah is a key figure in the end of days. So when we're talking about Obadiah, we know from scholarship that the end of days means, okay, the time when Messiah is going to come. This is the days of Messiah. So, for the Jewish people, when they take a look at the end of days or the day of the Lord, one of the things that they, and I won't go into Jewish eschatology right now, <laughs> I will someday, but not in this, well, maybe this course, but they say, what, what's going to happen? Uh, they say, well, things are going to get bad. Uh, there's going to be a battle. Now, this is from their perspective, okay? Their perspective, they say, there's going to be a battle, okay, against Gog of Magog. And they already know where Magog is. Magog was a kingdom in central Turkey. And Gog was the king of that area. And very interesting, Turkey, okay, and their uh, prime minister would like to rule the world with a second Muslim caliphate. I find that interesting. We'll go there right now. But there's going to be this battle of Gog and Magog, and there's going to be an ingathering. In other words, as you read through Jewish eschatology, there's going to be this miraculous time where God ingathers okay, the Jews from the diaspora, from all over the world. And they're going to be, in some cases, there's prophetic utterances of, of being caught in the clouds and taking to Jerusalem to meet the Messiah. I call it the Jewish rapture. So where do you think Paul got the rapture idea from? I suggest to you that it's not Christian. He wrote it in 1 Thessalonians, okay? 1 Thessalonians is the first book of the New Testament published in 50 AD. There were no other books of the books. Of the, so where does Paul get this idea of this coming of gathering? You know, the dead first will arise and all of us and we'll meet Jesus in the air, okay? That's, that's Jewish eschatology. Isn't that fascinating? And you'd say, that makes sense. This man is a Jewish Torah expert. This is what he is. But anyway, that's another story. Now, if you want to read about the day of the Lord, go to the book of Joel. Oh, my goodness. It's all over the place, okay? Let's consider um, Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. And again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. Now, here's a different way of saying the day of the Lord. They just have a different twist on it, but it means the same thing. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord. Well, okay, that's the day of the Lord. When the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among... Uh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. 
In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you have fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And let's see how far I want to go. I want to go through nine. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day, what day? The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord right? In that day there will be no light. The illuminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in the summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. But wait a minute. It says Yahweh will be king over all the earth. Amen. So who's Jesus? Yahweh. God. Okay, here we go again, because it says Jesus will be king over the world. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. So, we take a look at this, and I started with the prophecy of Obadiah. I came to Zechariah. We talk about the day of the Lord. If you're an Edomite, and you knew this, Edom is going to be totally annihilated in the time of Messiah. That's what's going to happen. Now remember, Esau held a grudge against Jacob. He wanted to kill him. Esau's son was Eliphaz, and uh, Esau's son was Eliphaz, and Eliphaz, Eliphaz had a son, Amalek. And remember what Amalek did? Okay, when the Hebrews are coming out of Egypt, they're at a place called Rephidim. We don't know where that is. Okay, there's guesses as to what it might be. Rephidim, where is that? But anyway, Amalek attacks them, and you can read it. In Deuteronomy 25, we won't go there right now, but he attacks them from the rear, okay, with the weak, the old, and so on. Now, what's interesting is this. People would say, oh, wait a minute. Amalek was one guy, okay, the son of Eliphaz. How could that one guy, in such a short period of time, be so numerous as to have an army? Well, it's simple math. When you study the Bible, there is a rule of thumb among biblical scholars, not theologians, biblical scholars. And they would say the rule of thumb is this. In the ancient Near East, whether it's the Hebrews or the Canaanites or the Egyptians or whatever, the rule of thumb is a generation is 40 years. Okay? Now, these people had lots of babies. Okay? They just didn't have one. I mean, they had lots of babies. I mean, they had to populate the earth. There weren't many people then. So if you say this, if you have a generation is 40 years, and you assume, okay, let's suppose, I mean, Esau had five sons. Okay, you can start reading about how many sons some of these guys had. Jacob had 12. Hello. Okay. Um, imagine, you'd say, on an average, that every man has four sons. They have some daughters, too. So that's 11 generations. That's 4 to the 11th power. That's over a million men in 11 generations. Because 
It is estimated that Amalek was born in roughly 1900 B.C. It is estimated upon biblical dating, and actually Assyrian dating, that the exodus happened in 1440 B.C., so we're dealing with 460 years, so 11 generations. So that would be a million men. You'd say, with a million men, holy cow. All right, some of those are young men. Uh, let's do 500,000. That's a big army. Nobody had an army of 500,000. You'd say, okay, so maybe it's not four. What about three on an average? Well, that will give you 60,000 over 11 generations. You'd say, that seems a bit much. What if we did two? Then you're about to about 20,000. 20,000 is a big army. This is not a lot of people. You keep on saying that there were six and a half million people. Okay, do this sometime. If there are six and a half million people, this is fun to do. Say there are 10 people walking together in a line, in a row. Determine how many rows there are in six million people. And suppose and give them a couple of feet between each row. So go home, do the math, and tell me how long the line is. Not six million people, my goodness. Quite long. Probably as long as the Sinai Peninsula. Okay. So again, when we take a look at numbers, okay, and you say, well, there were six million. Uh, sorry. Okay, we need to be realistic in terms of um, how we calculate that. But the math and the rule of thumb by Bible historians suggest to us that having an army of 20,000, no problem at that time over the course of those generations. Now, remember, Amalek comes from Edom. Amalek comes from Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is a son of Edom, so they're closely associated. Amalek is a, an enemy of God himself, as it's written in Psalm 83. Now, when you go to Deuteronomy 25, in verses 15, uh, 17 through 19, God is talking about, remember what Amalek did? Remember? Guess what? I want you to annihilate them and to remember to do this forever. And in 1 Samuel 15, which we'll get, God wants to commit genocide. Think about that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says all the Amalekites, every one of them, even, okay, when you get to the Hebrew, a newborn baby that is suckling at the breast. All of them, even their animals. And it's very interesting because I have never heard any scholar, any religious leader in any place, um, whether they be Messianic, Jewish, or whatever, none, except for the, for, from Jewish rabbis, um, about the seriousness of 1 Samuel 15. The Jews are very bothered by this, extremely. No Christians aren't, none. It just so happens, uh, let's continue on here. We'll get to that in a little bit. History continues. So all of a sudden we come to King Saul. What does King Saul have to do? 1 Samuel 15, God says to Samuel, kill them all. Now, as a note, I want you, this is so cool. Saul is of what tribe? Benjamin. Benjamin. Keep that in mind. This is very important. Okay. Saul doesn't kill Agag, who is the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Bible says something very interesting. 
The Bible says that everyone was killed except King Agag. That's exactly what it says in Hebrew. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So this will be important for a little bit, a little bit later on, and we'll get there. So remember, Saul doesn't kill Agag. Now, as we continue to go on, we begin to see this Edom thing keep on happening. Later, if you recall, David was really getting in hot water with Saul. And the hot water he was getting in, there was a dinner. They were going to have this dinner. I can't remember why the dinner. I don't know if it was a new moon festival or whatever. But they're going to have this dinner, and David was expected to be there. And David wasn't, okay, because he was afraid that Saul was going to kill him. He didn't know. So Saul's son, Jonathan, they were very, 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 very close friends. Jonathan said, uh, you better not come. But I'll tell you what, I want you to hide in a field, and I'll have a young man with me, and I will shoot some arrows. And if I say the arrows are beside the boy, okay, they're beside the area, that means no problem, dad, my dad does not want to kill you. However, if I tell the boy they're beyond you, okay, that's it, get out of town. And that's exactly what happens in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So David takes off. He's all alone. He's got nobody, okay? And he leaves the area of basically where Saul's palace is, and he doesn't go very far, probably maybe five miles. He goes to a village called Nob. And the village of Nob was a village just north of Jerusalem. And at that time, Jerusalem didn't exist because it was Jebus, okay? And so he goes to Nob, and it just so happens that the tabernacle was there. And so there was the high priest. So he comes there, and he lies through his teeth. He comes to the high priest and says, Man, you got some of that showbread there? Oh, I'm hungry. You can't have that. Well, I'm on a secret mission. Okay, Saul sent me on a secret mission. Really? Where's your men? Well, they're hiding. I mean, read it. He lies through his teeth for bread, okay? And again, we talked about this the last time. Here's one of the biblical liars, okay? And Jesus actually refers to this story, okay? When his disciples were actually breaking wheat kernels on Shabbat, and a certain group of Pharisees really got upset with them doing this and said, well, don't you remember what David did when he took the showbread, the holy bread that nobody's supposed to eat? He didn't condemn him. And he never said David was a liar. Isn't that interesting? I don't know what to do with that. Okay? So I'll give it to you and let you worry about it. Okay? So, but at this time, there's a guy in Saul's court that recognizes that David is at Nob. And his name is Doeg. Doeg tells Saul, na 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 boo boo, I know where David is. Saul says, really? Let's go. So Saul grabs a bunch of guys and Doeg and they go. David's out of town now. He takes off. And they confront the priest. They find out that David was there. And he tells Doeg this, kill them all. Kills the priest, his family, everybody. Except his son who gets away and then becomes high priest. Doeg is an Edomite. Now all of a sudden, we have an Edomite coming against the line of Messiah. This is getting a little too close. So, Esau, his son Eliphaz, has a son, Amalek. Amalek is an Edomite. 
And obviously his son Amalek is the start of the Amalekites. But Amalek is an Edomite. He is a descendant of Esau. And they become enemies of Israel. If you remember, they attacked the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, headed to Mount Sinai at a place called Rephidim. Now, it doesn't end. Because we take a look at this in Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So God is going to blot out the name of Amalek. We get the impression that God is going to come against these people and destroy them, but he never says when. And on top of that, it says that God is going to have war against Amalek one generation after another. The implication is he will be warring Amalek forever. Is God saying that this is finally going to end when Messiah comes? You guys, the Edomites basically disappeared from history not long after Jesus' day. So it's interesting to hear these words of God himself saying that he is going to have war with Amalek, Edomites, for generation to generation, the implication is forever. How does that how does that relate to the end times? Jesus defeats all the enemies of Israel when he returns. So when lesson 66, we're going to continue our studies on this. It's going to take us to some surprising places. And we're going to come face to face with those who are anti-Israel, anti-Messiah, and in English, anti-Christ. Because Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is translated to the Greek and finally to the English as Christ. Anti-Israel, anti-Messiah, and anti-Christ. So I'll see you in Lesson 66. Till then, Lech Shalom B'Shem Yeshua Adonenu. Go, go in the peace in the name of Jesus our Lord.